we're finishing up chapter 5 of Matthew, uh, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to finish it this morning. And uh, if you, we're going to read it in just a second. But really what's happening here, Matthew is driving everything in this chapter to the final verse of the chapter, verse 48. And it's kind of amazing the way everything comes to a head and comes to a point at that very verse. Let's go ahead and and read Matthew 5, starting at verse 43. So we've been going through the the six antitheses. And, you know, uh, uh, antithesis is just, you know, two contrary premises, right, That, that are in conflict with each other or in contradiction with each other. And Jesus is bringing up six of these, and this is the sixth one. So we've gone through murder, and we've gone through divorce, and we've gone through adultery, and we've gone through oath-taking, and we've gone through, um, what was the the last one? Fire and rain, I can't remember. This one now is about loving the enemy. And so he says, you've heard it was said, and that's the formula that he's been using, right? He's going to quote the old law, the traditional law. And then he's going to say, but I'm going to tell you something different. And he's going to take it from the context of the macro right down to the micro. Jesus is always doing this. The reason we are micro here at the effect is because Jesus is micro. Everything that he talks about, everything that he teaches is in the context of the micro, person to person, heart to heart. And it's also in the context of kingdom, which is always here and now, never there then. So this is where we as modern Westerners and the church basically for 1,500 years has had such a hard time interpreting the Sermon on the Mount because we're bringing the wrong context to it. We want to generalize his teachings here in the sermon to be able to hang a church or a nation on it, and it won't work. The Sermon on the Mount is pure anarchy if you try to take it into a macro context. And we tend to think of the the kingdom of heaven as being heaven of the next life. And as soon as you do that, you do all sorts of violence to everything that Jesus is trying to say. We're trying to bring those contexts back and understand it in the context he delivered it to those first followers as best as we can recreate. So you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And then they're in, I haven't, if you're reading along with the, with the flyer in brackets, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. That doesn't appear in the NASB that you see on the screens, and we'll talk about that in a second. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? And then that last verse. Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so that last line strikes total fear into the heart of the legalist, right? The person who is coming from a macro context, the person who is coming from a legal context, how are we supposed to be perfect? Now, I want to point out to you, and I think I pointed out before, but there is this beautiful symmetry and structure in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's just so beautifully constructed from chapter 5, 6, and to 7. And even within the chapters, 
there is this symmetry and there is this structure. And did Matthew mean it that way? Did he plan it that way? I don't know. This is what I'm seeing and getting out of it. I believe that, that he did. That this was his, as he's taking all of the teachings of Jesus and compiling them into these three chapters. Because Jesus didn't have a Sermon on the Mount per se where he said all this stuff in this order. It's scattered all across Luke's gospel in various settings. And so we know that it's been compiled. And he compiled it in such a way that it's got this great, great structure. And if you think about it, he starts with the Beatitudes. Remember those eight Beatitudes? where he's giving the picture of the final product. This is what a person who is living in kingdom looks like. That person who is living here and now, that person who is living in connection, in complete oneness. And he talks about the poor in spirit. And he talks about the perseverance. He talks about the purity of heart. He talks about the passion for peace that is not a significant, glorious ending of conflict, but it's a showing up every day like a farmer unseen, invisible, to do the dirty work that nobody wants to do, that nobody even sees, in order to lay the groundwork for that kind of connection. All of those attributes he's showing as the picture of the finished product. And from there he goes into salt and light, his two great metaphors for the effect that such a person will have on the community around them. Salt in the ancient world being what preserved life, added zest to life, fertilized new life, and light, which brought clarity and illumination. He said, this is the effect you will have if you have internalized these attributes as a person. And then he goes on to start talking about the law. He hasn't come to abolish the law, but he's coming to fulfill it within that kind of context as salt and light, as a person who has taken on the attributes that he lays out in the Beatitudes. What does that look like to have the law fulfilled in such a way? Not by the code, not by the rubric of just following rules and, and obedience, but this internal transformation that changes everything. And then he illustrates with these six antitheses and by going through murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and retribution and now loving the enemy. I mean, think about it. Could there be any more relevant list right now for us today about what is bedeviling us and what is at issue both personally and in our communities? I mean, it's amazing how the ancient world mirrors ours because people are people. They don't change. Every new generation is like this completely mind-washed, group of people that has to figure this stuff out for themselves. And so we tend to do that to the extent that we can learn from the ancients. Great, because that wisdom doesn't change either. But it's just amazing to me how this is so contemporary. This is so relevant, this list that he has chosen as the six places that he wants to illustrate how this law is fulfilled when we take it out of the usual legal context and put it into a relational context, into a micro context. So from the Beatitudes, that picture of the finished product, that picture of the perfection of someone who is here and now and connected, to be you perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're completing a circle here. From perfection 
to perfection with this journey that we've taken in between that lets us know how that perfection is going to lay out. Now, here's the rub, right? We know we're imperfect. So how can we be perfect and imperfect at the same time? That just doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction. It's a paradox. We all know it. So how are we supposed to understand this? And then when he asks us to love the enemy, he's literally asking us to love and hate at the same time. How are we supposed to do that? How do we love and hate at the same time? The enemy is someone that we don't like, by definition. doesn't mean necessarily a direct adversary in that language, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it does mean someone we don't understand, we don't like, we don't, we don't get. We don't want to pick out curtains with that person, right? How do we love and dislike? How do we love and hate at the same time? So since this was Jesus' illustration, if we can figure this one out, it's going to shed light on how we can be perfect and imperfect at the same time. So we're going to start with the love and hate part of it. Now, he starts out in verse 43, the very first verse, right? You've heard it was said, to love your enemy, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Notice there, as you're looking at it, that the love your neighbor part is in all caps, and the other part is not. Whenever you see all caps in the New Testament, it means that it is a direct quote from the Old Testament. That's how they notate it for you. But this line of Jesus is found nowhere in Scripture. To hate your enemy, you won't find anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. But he's quoting it as if. And all the other quotes were coming directly from Scripture. This one, the first half is, but not the second half. So what's going on here? What is Jesus doing? Is he misquoting something? Is he just pulling something out of the air to be hyperbolic? Not really. Because what Jesus is quoting is not directly from written scripture or written law, but it was from the oral tradition that was being circulated and being adhered to in his time in first century Judea. It wasn't written down except in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Interestingly, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in, was it 1948? There was one scroll called the Community Scroll, which laid out the very strict discipline and practice of these Jews who had moved out into the desert and formed their own communities at Qumran. And there it lays out this idea that was also a rabbinical teaching in their oral tradition that is later, later at the end of the first century, was written down in their Talmud, but it's not in the Bible itself. And the idea here is that if someone perpetrates harm on you, if someone does something to harm you, and they're not showing any remorse, if they have not made amends, if they have not asked for forgiveness, not only do you not have to forgive them, the way they put it is you're supposed to keep the serpent in your heart. In other words, you're supposed to hate them, and it is lawful to hate them until such time as they make things right. And so this is the way that the Jews were operating. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that all was understood as being lawful in this. Jesus is going right up against that, as Jesus always does. Because he's not talking about the macro, the group setting. He's going right back to the heart, to the individual heart in the micro. Now, who is this neighbor that we're talking about? You know where neighbor comes from in our language? Originally, it was nigh bore. Remember when morning is nigh? It means near. 
So a neighbor is one who is nearby, who is near to you. Kariba in Aramaic means exactly the same thing. The neighbor is just someone who is nearby. Your neighbor lives next door. They're nearby. That's your neighbor. doesn't have anything to do with the extent of your relationship with that person. It just has to do with their proximity. How close are they? Who is nearby? Literally, figuratively, nearby. Are they a part of your clan? Okay. Even if you don't know them very well, they're still neighbor. They're still nearby. Now, the enemy... Be'el de Sana in, in Aramaic means the adversary, but it also just means one who is not close, one who stands outside your camp. They don't belong to your camp. They don't belong to your tribe, your family. They're of a different culture. They could be Gentile if you're Jewish, but you don't really understand them. They don't follow your laws, your culture. They're someone who is not close to you. So here was what Jesus is asking us to do. How do we love someone that we don't like, that we don't understand, that we don't approve of necessarily, someone who has hurt us, someone that maybe we despise? Notice that Jesus uses the tax collector and the Gentiles in his illustrations there. Hey, if you love those who love you, hey, the tax collectors do the same. The tax collectors were the enemy. Baal de Sana. They were the enemy because they stood outside of everything that they held dear, both nationally and also religiously. And then the Gentiles is the other example that he uses. Same thing. They are the enemy. They stand outside. So how are we supposed to do this? Jesus gives us a clue in the words that he uses in Aramaic. Of course, we don't see that because love is love in English. You've probably famously heard that there are four different words for love in Greek, but there are two different words for love, at least in Aramaic, that Jesus is using right here. When Jesus says to love your neighbor, the word he uses is rahem. Rahem comes from the same root word as the word for womb, a woman's womb. And so Rahem love is understood as something that flows out of you from a deep place. There's no effort to it. It flows like a mother's love and just lands on the, on the beloved. That's loving your neighbor. That's an easy thing to do if you're connected to that person. It's full of affection and devotion and all those other emotions that accompany the love itself. But when he says to love your enemy, the word he uses is Ahab. Now, the root word ahab means to kindle a fire. It could mean to germinate a seed at the same time. Now, what in the world does that have to do with love? Well, when you think about kindling a fire, what do you do? You take a lot of dead sticks and dry pieces of this and that, and you carefully you know, place it, and then you put some larger sticks over that. You have to spark it until you get a flame, right? And then you blow on it. You make sure no wind or anything else. You have to really guard that thing at the very beginning until it takes on and really becomes a blaze, and then you can feed it the large logs. That's exactly the image that Jesus is using, that the Jews used, the Hebrews used, to talk about a love that is a process, It's a process of becoming identified with the other, of connecting with the other. It's not immediately apparent. It's not immediately desired. And it takes a heck of a lot of work. But these are the two different words that are being used here that are giving us a clue of how this actually happens. I want to read you just a little passage from Thomas Merton. Because when we use love, sometimes it's very difficult for us because we have such different ideas of what love is. 
Is love a feeling? Is love behavior? What, what is love really? Merton writes this. Love, in fact, is the spiritual life. And without it, all other exercises of the spirit, however lofty, are emptied of content and become illusions. The more lofty they are, the more dangerous the illusion. Love takes one's neighbor as one's other self. Love takes one's neighbor, the one who is near, the one who is right in your path, as one's other self and loves him with all the immense humility and discretion and reserve and reverence without which no one can presume to enter into the sanctuary of another's subjectivity. And I know that's a mouthful. But if we can love that other self, seeing that other as a part of ourselves, as identified with, and love with all the humility, discretion, reserve, and reverence without which no one can presume to enter into the sanctuary of another's subjectivity. How in the world do we really identify with the person until we've emptied ourselves out enough, especially of the preconceptions that we hold with someone that we don't understand? so that we can really approach them, that we can become one with them. Love demands a complete inner transformation. For without this, we cannot possibly come to identify ourselves with our brother. We have to become, in some sense, the person we love. We have to become the person we love. And this involves a kind of death of our own being, our own self. What is Jesus constantly telling us, right? Lose yourself. If you want to find your life, you need to lose it. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself. The whole of Jesus' way is about losing ourselves in the oneness and connection. It's not about self-discovery so much. It's not about self-development. It's not about finding better ways to be able to achieve the things we want to achieve in life. It's about letting go. No matter how hard we try, we resist this death, this little death, as often contemplation is called. This kind of death of our own being, our own self, no matter how hard we try, we resist this death. We fight back with anger, with recriminations, with demands, with ultimatums. We seek any convenient excuse to break off and give up the difficult task. This was transforming for me when I read this because it made love clear to me. Love is not the feeling of affection. Love is not the good deeds that we do, the loving, kind acts that we do for each other even. Because there are other motives for all that. And emotions are all over the place. What love is, is identification with the beloved. When we really see that other as a part of ourselves, as another fellow flawed human being, and we can identify then what flows out of that identification are behaviors and acts that look like love. We become walking, talking golden rules at that point. And if we do that long enough, feelings of affection can follow. Not necessarily so, but it could happen. But it doesn't really matter. It's all about the identification. When we have that, then we have the love. Love is the identification. Love is seeing the other as our other self. C.S. Lewis had an interesting 
way of going about this when he wrote, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. But how exactly do I love myself? I don't feel any sort of affection for myself. You know, I don't really like myself sometimes when I look in the mirror. But I feed myself and I clothe myself and I educate myself and I put a roof over my head. And so these are things that I concretely can do for the other. But even there, if it's just to do the good deed because we are commanded to do the good deed, well then as Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. You're not digging down. That transformation is not occurring. But when those cares for another person are flowing in the opposite direction, out of the fact that we see them as part of ourselves, now we're talking about something completely different. There was a woman uh, years ago, and we were talking about this, and, and she told a story. She said there was a woman at work that she just really didn't like. I mean, this woman could just come around the corner of the cubicle, and her blood pressure would spike, you know, 10 points or whatever. And, and it was just really difficult. So what did she do? She decided to go the opposite way. She decided to kill this woman with kindness. And now they became best friends. And it was just her realization of how this works, the process. Someone that immediately seems adversarial. But if you can make that connection and just treat them the way you want to be treated as a fellow human being and make that connection, everything else can follow from there. And then there's that great line from Proverbs 25. By doing that, you're heaping hot coals on the enemy's head, right? That idea of we're going to destroy our enemy by turning them into friends. To turn them into a friend and have them see by contrast the way we act as opposed to the way that they are acting toward us. That's the heaping of the hot coals. So Jesus is going to have some illustrations here. He's going to, of course, Jesus has illustrations. Are you kidding me? He always has illustrations and really good ones. His metaphors are amazing. Look at the metaphors he's given us so far, just in chapter 5. But he says, bless them that curse you and do good to those that hate you. You know, that doesn't appear on the screens, but I put it in because it's interesting. You're not going to find that in any new versions of the Bible. You're going to find it in King James era, 1611 versions of the Bible, and others that came from around that time. Why would that be there and it wouldn't be in ours, you ask? And I could really go off here, and i got to make sure that I don't do that and talk to you about, about uh, textual families. But just very quickly, in 1611, when King James commissioned the, uh, the Bible to be written. He was looking for a Bible that would cross all of the de- denominational lines. We're uh, a century into the Reformation at this point, and everybody's fighting. Every denomination is fighting with the other. And they're putting out Bible versions that comport with their particular theology, with margin notes that lock that theology down. And King James wanted a Bible that everybody could use, that would be universal. It would be right down the middle. It wouldn't have any of these colorations, and it wouldn't have any notes. And he succeeded beautifully. For 400 years, the King James has been the the best-selling Bible in English-speaking world until I think the NIV in the 70s um, finally passed it up. But when he did this, and he uh, commissioned a board of scholars to do this translation, they had about 12 manuscripts that they were going from in order to create the King James Bible. By the 20th century, when the NIV was was translated, there were over 24,000 
manuscripts and fragments available. There was an explosion of archaeology that was done starting in the mid-19th century. And what was happening is those 12 manuscripts that the King James scholars had at their disposal were all from what we now understand is the same textual family. It was from the Byzantine family. And that was a a text that was copied over and over and over again for hundreds of years, practically a millennium. That's how long the Byzantine Empire lasted. What they were finding in the 19th century, in the mid-1800s and in late 1800s, were in the deserts around Egypt and, and southern, what's now southern Israel. And those areas, they, these manuscripts they found were tucked into long lost shelves, kind of, you know, Indiana Jones stuff, in monasteries that were out in the middle of nowhere in a hot, dry climate that kind of mummified the papyrus and the, and the, and the skins that they were written on so that they survived much better and were intelligible. But they hadn't been touched in centuries. They were older than the Byzantine texts, and they hadn't been recopied. And so scholars today give much more weight to what has now become the Alexandrian family because the texts are older, they haven't been copied, and they're shorter, all of which gives us clues that they were probably the first ones and the ones in the Byzantine family were added to. So when they translated, they left those out because they, that, those two, these two lines here, bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you, were not in those older texts, those Alexandrian texts. And so they leave them out, but I think they're pretty cool, so I put them back in again. You know, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, that follows right in what Jesus is talking about. And this idea of a blessing is allowing someone to partake in. That's the way the Jews understood a blessing. When a father blessed his firstborn son, he was giving him the permission, the authority to partake in his estate. That was the idea of a blessing. When we are blessed by God, The idea is God is giving us permission, the ability to partake in all of his creation and everything that he has created for us. And so to bless those that hate you, bless those that curse you, the idea is you're still going to allow them to partake. We're not going to hold things back from them. We're going to allow this to flow. And then Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. The word pray there is selah in Aramaic. And we've talked about this a lot, I know, but just as a refresher, Salah, in terms of prayer, literally means to lean into, to incline toward. And the root word points back to a hunter in the in the forest laying a snare for a small animal and very carefully setting the snare, covering it over with leaves and pulling the drawstring back and, and then hiding in a blind, quietly, expectantly waiting for something to happen so that that trap is sprung. That's the visual behind the idea of prayer. So interesting, right? But if you are actually in your prayer closet, if you are sequestered alone, that is the kind of experience of that that sort of breathless expectancy something is going to happen it can happen at any moment and you're on uh, you're on fine-tuned hair trigger right you're aware you're present you're really connected that's the idea of praying praying for those who persecute you can we lean into those people can we be present to those people can we try to understand those people Or do we just shelve them off and keep them at arm's length? 
This is a nuance that Jesus is bringing to these illustrations. Because if you can do that, he says, you will be sons of your Father in heaven. And ladies, I just want you to know that the word that's translated as sons can also be translated as children. So we're going to say, you'll be children of your Father in heaven. So we'll be non-exclusive here. And to be children of the King, to be children of God. If you were the son or the, the in that culture, it would be the son of the King. You were like the King's avatar. When the king sent the son out, it was as if the king were present. And if you didn't obey the son, you were disobeying the king. And all the authority and all the punishment that would ensue would be yours. So the son, the child, is not only the identity, shares identity with the father, is identical with the father, is the father's avatar. All authority rests there. That's what he's saying. When you are loving this way, when you are connecting this way, you are God's representative on earth. You are God in human form in the sense of the way that you love, the way that you interact. You are heirs to the Father's estate, if you will. You are able to participate in the Father's affairs. There's that idea of blessing again, right? Able to participate, able to partake. Now we and the Father in this sense are one if we are signing on to this kind of love. But then what are we one with? What exactly are we one with when we're one with the Father? And here he comes up with this next beautiful metaphor, the idea of sun and rain. Just as the Father causes the sun to fall, the sunshine to fall on the good and the bad, and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, This is the kind of indiscriminate love that the Father partakes in. There's no degree to it. It's always on full blast. You can't turn it down. You can't turn it away. It's like sunlight. It's blowing out in 360 degrees from a sphere in all directions. You can stand in the shade if you want to, but it's still there. That's up to you. Because as soon as you walk out into the sunlight, you get it all. And this is the idea of the Father's love. The sun and the rain falls indiscriminately on everyone and everything. And that's the very image that Jesus uses for God's love. Incredible. If you really take it to its radical conclusion, that's the kind of love that we are becoming one with. No moderation, no distinction. It's actually an unjust love because it doesn't follow the rules in terms of what is deserved and what is not deserved, what should be rewarded and what should be punished. It doesn't follow any of those kinds of rules. And that just blows up our whole idea of things. To be one with the Father is to be one with his perfect love that is also unjust. You couldn't legislate it in the macro or you would lose the group. But in the micro, one-on-one, if we don't have it, We're not really in relationship, not the kind of relationship God is talking about. And then he says, finally, if you love those who love you, what have you done? If you greet only your brothers, what have you really done? Where's the value in that? You know, and the word he uses for love, there is a hav again. And the word he uses for greet that has been translated as Greek is actually a couple of words that talk about invoking shalom. Shalom was a universal greeting. It was wishing peace, but not just absence of conflict, but the greatest amount of health and wealth and connection and, and all of that fortune. That was the idea. So if you only do that in the sense of the Eastern hospitality, which was expected of these peoples, 
then you're really not doing anything more than the tax gatherers and the Gentiles are doing. Nothing is really happening. So what's the value? If we can see anyone as other, as less than we, as outcast, then we have not experienced the oneness of God's love, of the Father's love. We haven't really understood what perfect love is all about. And it's critical to see this distinction because it's not about doing good deeds. It's not about following rules. That doesn't get us anywhere. I mean, it's better than not doing them, and it certainly benefits the person you're being nice to, but you're not undergoing this interior transformation. It's about experiencing this radical love, this outrageous love. There is no other way, in Jesus' way, of getting where he's trying to get us to go. And if we judge anyone else's enemy as living outside of God's love, then at the same time, Jesus is going to say in chapter 7 that we're judging ourselves. We're going to live in that kind of fear of judgment ourselves if we are judging others. We've got to learn to love and hate at the same time. And now this word hate gives us a problem. The word is sena. It doesn't necessarily mean a malicious kind of hate the way we think of. It means to prefer less. So when Jesus say, says to hate your father and mother, if you want to follow me, He's saying you've got to prefer less the familial connection, that whole structure, than actually going out and experiencing something that will take you far afield. Can you do that? That's the sense here of love and hate. There will be those that we prefer less in life. Can I get an amen on that? All right. But that's okay. We are not commanded to like anybody. But we can still love them in the sense of seeing that identification that lets loving behavior flow. And can we see ourselves in that same way? Can we prefer ourselves less than everyone else out there so that we can deny ourselves and lose ourselves enough to be in real relationship? There's a, a great, great scene um, where Jesus is invited to Simon's house. Simon is a very well-respected and powerful rabbi, Pharisee. And he invites Jesus to, uh, to his house for a meal. And he wants to observe him, and he wants to question him, and he wants to see what this is all about. Well, while they are there reclining at table, and they did recline laying on their left-hand side so that their feet are all sticking out like spokes on a wheel from a central horseshoe-shaped shaped table, a woman comes in, pushes through the crowd, through the outer courtyard, into the dining area, and she is known as the worst sinner in the village, worst sinner in town. And she comes in with a bottle of very expensive perfume, and she kneels behind Jesus' feet that would have been coming out from this cushion. And she's weeping, and her tears are falling on his feet, and she's drying them with her hair, and she's pouring on the perfume. And of course, Simon is seething up there, and he says, if this guy were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him because you would have nothing to do with a sinner. You wouldn't get even on the same side of the street with somebody like that so that your clothes wouldn't brush against them. And here she is touching his feet and anointing them. And you can just imagine Jesus, if you see this like a movie scene, he doesn't even break stride. He's, he's laying there, he's munching on his finger food, and he probably doesn't even look at Simon, but he knows what he's thinking in the room. And he just says, Simon, I have a, I have a question for you. You know, he says, ask it. He says, okay, uh, uh, a merchant has uh, two debtors, one that owes 500 denarii and the other that owes 50. 
neither one of them can repay. And he graciously forgives both their debts. Which one will love him more? And he says, well, I suppose the one he, whom he forgave more. And he says, you've judged correctly. And he said, when I came here, you didn't wash my feet. There were no vessels outside in the, in the foyer to wash my feet. You gave me no kiss. That was the, the general greeting in, in, Eastern time, in Eastern hospitality, the embrace and the kiss. There was no kiss of greeting. This woman has come and she has washed my feet with her tears. And she hasn't ceased kissing them. And he said, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. Now, that isn't always necessarily true, is it? Even Jesus tells another story about the unforgiving servant. Another master forgives his servant a huge amount of money that would be in the millions today. And the servant goes out and meets a friend of his who owes him eh, a day's pay. And he has the guy thrown into jail because he won't pay him back. And so the master then throws the first guy back in jail, and he has to deal with his unjustness. So even Jesus is saying, sometimes, you know, people don't feel the love, even after they've been forgiven. But Jesus is trying to make a deeper point here, and a really important point. How do we keep from knowing this nature of the Father's love? What keeps us so far back? If you think about it, Simon has done everything right. He's a man. He's privileged. He has studied. He has learned. He's respected. He's followed the law. He is entitled to everything that he has gotten. He feels that he has earned everything that he has gotten. And what is the result of that entitlement? Well, there's an arrogance there. There's a lack of compassion there. There's a judgment that is there. And then you think about the woman. We don't know what it is that she sinned. Most likely she was a prostitute because women that were taken out of their families, maybe she was divorced, didn't have a way to make a living. We don't really know what her issue was. But we do know that she wasn't entitled. She wasn't righteous in anyone's eyes. And yet she is remorseful, and she's grateful, and she's loving, and she's humble. She is poor in spirit, the first beatitude that Jesus utters. That sense of poverty, even if you're rich. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. If we feel entitled, if we feel we have earned what we have, then we cannot be grateful, and we cannot be poor in spirit. We will find ourselves at odds with others who have not earned the same thing that we have earned, who haven't abided by the same code that we have abided by. This is where Jesus is going with this. And he's trying to point this out to these people who look down on this woman, and yet she is the one who is connected. She is the one who is now living in kingdom. And of course, that begs the question, how do we view ourselves? How do you view yourself? Typically, we judge ourselves based on law, right? On legal righteousness, how well we have performed according to either the churches that we grew up with or our nation or our group, our clan, whatever it happens to be. Typically, that's the way we're going to judge ourselves. But that very way of looking at ourselves and looking at others is what keeps us from knowing the nature of the Father's love. That's why Jesus says, don't judge at the beginning of chapter 7. As soon as we go into that mode, we've lost it. 
because there is no way to earn a love that falls on us like rain and sunshine. You can't do it. If we believe that we've earned this love, then we're entitled to it and we're not grateful. You can't be entitled and grateful at the same time. And furthermore, we can believe that we can lose it. If we believe we earned it, we believe that we can lose it. And then we live in fear. Since we judge others, we fear the judgment for ourselves. And we will never know God's brand of love coming from that worldview. God's love is judgmentless. There is no judgment to it. It's completely indiscriminate. It's just there like the air. Anybody can breathe the air. Everybody has access to the Father's love. And I know that sounds pretty and it sounds poetic and it sounds kind of Pollyanna and all of that. But I want you to just stop for a second as you're sitting there and see if you can even consider what this really means when we talk about a love like sun and rain, a love that is completely indiscriminate and has no prerequisites. It just is, and we all get it no matter what. How do we really view such a love, such an unjust love? A lot of it's going to come from where you're coming from, If you feel entitled, if you feel that you have earned your position, if you feel that you have done things right, then you're going to view this love with outrage, with indignation, maybe with disbelief as well. But if you're coming to this love feeling that you don't really deserve it, but you're amazed that you get it anyway, then there's going to be an immense relief, isn't there? There's going to be joy. There's going to be gratitude, just like the woman. Be honest with yourselves. How comfortable are we really with this indiscriminate love? You know, I've been teaching the Father's love for about 25 years now. Even before I was ordained, I was still doing studies and doing this and doing that. I've been teaching about the Father's love since the first night that it became real to me. I'm, I can put myself right back on that deck behind our condo in Dana Point that night when all of a sudden it just came clear in a way that it hadn't before. And this was after 10 years of study and 10 years of working in church and doing all the things that I did. From that night on, it became my mission to try to get this across, what this is about, what this Father's love is all about. And yet after 25 years and teaching and that experience, I can still tell you, I'm not fully comfortable with it. It's just one of those things. I think I am. And then something will trigger me. And there it is again. There's that kind of indignation. It's just kind of like, really? You know, this person gets it too. We all get paid the same. And I've been working for 25 years. You know, it's amazing how that just comes back up again. This goes so deep and it flies so in the face of all of our experience as a person and all that we've been taught, and all that we want to control, right? Because if we can earn it, we can control it. We don't like being out of control. We don't like just being in the receiver position. This is what we're talking about here. Like that elder brother of the prodigal son, you will sometimes find me sulking outside the party. It's the way it works. 
And I'm sure it's the way that it works for you too. But being that being said, I am absolutely at the same time still convinced that this is God's love and this is real. And this is what Jesus died trying to get across to us. This very love, because if we can get there, everything changes in life. And as imperfect as I am, my life is so different than it was all those years ago. I'm convinced of this love. I've been attacked for trying to get this love across. I remember early on Marion saying, what is it about God's love that makes people so angry? It was amazing because you're stepping on their belief system at the same time. That legal belief system that is so ingrained in us, both secularly and religiously, boy, it does not die easy. Not in us, even if we're willing, but certainly in someone who's not. So how do you see yourself? Think about it this way. How important is the law to you? How important is following the law to you? How proud are you if you have followed the law? How devastated are you if you haven't? When Jesus says, therefore be perfect as your Father is in heaven perfect, what is it that you hear when he says something like that? Does it mean that you have to work even harder to try to toe the line and keep the law and do good deeds, earn with perfection that Father's love? Or is it something else? Remember Jesus said, therefore, you are to be perfect. Remember the old saw, whenever you see therefore, you have to go back and see what it's there for? Ah. Therefore, important tiny little word there. It connects this last verse to everything that went before it in chapter 5. This is Jesus through Matthew driving down to this final point and then connecting that point back to everything that went before. Therefore, you are to be perfect. He's trying to make this connection. Being perfect as the Father is perfect it doesn't mean that we are without mistakes. It doesn't mean that we're without blemish. We know we are as human beings. It doesn't take that away. It's a state of being. It's a state of being here and now with that awareness of our poverty of spirit that we don't deserve everything we're going to get, but we're not going to be denied either. It's that kind of connection. And as long as you're trying to be perfect, you never will be. But you will become entitled, of course, because it's not about right or wrongdoing. It's not about good doing. It's about this fundamental change inside that makes everything happen. The first step is admitting our imperfection. That's our first step. Just like the first step of the 12 steps is admitting your powerlessness. It has to start there. We have to know that we're imperfect. We can't imagine that we can somehow surmount that on our own steam. Admitting imperfection is the first step to perfection and the gratitude that comes with it. Because until we can love and hate at the same time, we will never know the truth about love. We will never know how love works until we are showering it like sun and rain on someone that we don't even like. 
that hasn't deserved our consideration in our estimation. But when it showers from us, then we realize how it had to shower on us from a higher source. That's how it all connects. That we can be perfect and imperfect at the same time. That an imperfect human being can be perfectly one with Father, God, by accepting, gratefully accepting, the sunshine and the rainfall of this absolutely degreeless and indiscriminate love. That's the kind of perfection we can attain in a given moment. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. Let's pray. Father, this is too much for a human heart or a human mind. We're not going to be able to get our arms around it. At least what we pray for right now is that we can be less resistant to the idea and less resistant enough that we'll be willing to take the first step in the direction of showering some sun or rain on another person and feeling how that works, seeing that it can be real in our own lives so that we can understand how it works in yours. Father, we want to be those kind of people, but it's really hard for us. Help us, guide us, and make us less resistant to the change that is needed. We know you will if we will partner with you. So help us to do exactly that, Lord. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us perfectly first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.